Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to today's episode of the Middle Eastern Studies Series at the New Books Network. My name is Dara Nartash, and I will be your host for this episode. Today, we will be speaking with Aifar Karakaya Stump, who is Associate Professor of History at the College of William and Mary. We will talk about her monograph, The Kizilbash Alevis in Ottoman Anatolia, Sufism, Politics and Community, published in December 2019 by Edinburgh University Press. Hello, Aifar, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, Dara, and thank you for having me. Before we delve into the research process and the major findings of your work, could you briefly tell our uninitiated listeners about Kuzulbash Alevis? Who are they? Yes, uh, the Alevis, uh, historically known as the Kuzulbash, are... Um, a little-known ethno-religious community, I should say. Um, together with the kindred Bektashis, the Bektashi order, they make up around 15% of the population of Turkey. Um, and there are also uh, smaller pockets of related groups in neighboring countries, especially uh, in the Balkans. Um, while um, their liturgical language is primarily Turkish, as far as we know. Um, there are among the Alevis also large numbers of uh, Kurmanji, Kurdish, and, and, and Zazaki or Kurmanj uh, speakers as well. Um, I should also add here that uh, the Alevis are um, sometimes mislabeled as um, the Turkish Shia, um, in the media and, and even in some scholarly works, but uh, that is not uh, that is a mis uh, uh, mislabeling, uh, I guess, because um, not only do they not self-identify as Shia, but uh, in many ways they also defy uh, Shia normativity. This is a point that you are also making in the conclusion of your book, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, so, so in the conclusion, I briefly mentioned that uh, my book is in part directed at the conception of Kuzilbashism or Alevism through the rubric of Shi'ism. Uh, Shi um, more specifically, uh, I push against uh, the treatment of Kuzilbashism or Alevism as a reincarnation of what is called Gulat Shi'ism, that is associated with the initial party of Ali uh, prior to, uh, to Jafar al-Sadiq, Imam Jafar al-Sadiq. Now, uh, of course, there are several uh, important parallels and overlaps between various early Shia ideas um, and, uh, and a number of um, Kizilbash Alivi beliefs, starting with the centrality of Ali, in Kizilbash Alevi religious culture and devotional life. But my research shows that uh, these elements within Alevism uh, were mediated in large measure through Sufism. Uh, and, 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 and we don't have any verifiable venues of transmission uh, from, from the early Shia uh, to the Kizilbash milieu. And, and this stands in contrast to the case of the Nusayri Alawites, for instance. Uh, in their case, when we study 
their documents, their literature, then we can actually establish uh, a, a, a direct uh, a transmission um, between their tradition uh, and, or, or we can trace their tradition to the inner circles of the 10th and the 11th Shi'i imams uh, via specific historical figures. Uh, so I guess I want to underline this in part because um, of this whole problem of lumping together historically distinct groups into this one uh, undifferentiated category of gulat. Um, yeah. This lumping together of Kazilbashism with various different like ethnic and religious identities is something I imagine that we will talk about a lot in this um, episode because your book really tries to disentangle some of these uh, perhaps confused uh, paradigms within the historiography. So in that vein, I want to ask about the sort of historiographical intervention that you are making into the paradigms through which Kazilbashism has been viewed. So one of these, you say, treats uh, Kazilbashism as an undifferentiated strain within the hazy category of Turkish folk Islam, and the other sort of brackets Kazilbashism with other popular religio-political movements that proliferated in the late medieval Irano-Turkic world. What would you say were the sort of political stakes that were generative of these paradigms and the problems that you identify with these frameworks? Yes. Uh... Great question. Um, um, so, well, it, it's it's not it's not an original insight to say that uh, groups that do not conform to the majority pose a challenge to dominant religious and nationalist ideologies, and somehow these groups must be explained without validating their non-conforming religious beliefs or ethnic identities. Uh, so in regards to the first approach uh, that you mentioned, uh, uh, that is um, more common in Turkish historiography, we can say that uh, uh, the treatment of Kızılbaşism or Alevism as an undifferentiated strain within the hazy category of Turkish folk Islam that is um, supposed to be inherently syncretistic, by the way, uh, fulfills a dual purpose. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Alevism is thereby denied a distinctiveness and internal coherence and, and, and reduced to a decadent form of Islam. And on the other hand, it strategically co-opts uh, <clears throat> co-opts this tradition or, or the Kızılbaş Alevi identity uh, to Turkish nationalism by, uh, among other things, obscuring the existence of uh, Kurdish and Zazaki Alevis. So it does, you know, many things all at once. Um, and, and the other framework through which Kızılbaşism has been viewed in the historiography, as you said, um, uh, and, and this one is more common in Iranian and Islamic studies. Um, it involves uh, the bracketing of Kızılbaşism with other popular religio-political movements that proliferated in the late medieval Iran or Turkic world. Um, 
Now, so these movements, uh, again, they are all uh, thrown into the same bag uh, with little regard to their historical specificities. And they are viewed as uh, sort of the reincarnation of some original Ur heresy, you know, the Gulat. Um, this, I think this is, this is a historical approach and, and it's problematic because of that. And, uh, and, and, and it is, um, especially with its sort of externalistic take on these groups, is very, very much reminiscent of uh, medieval heresiographical literature. And ultimately, uh, it serves to marginalize these uh, uh, dissentient groups um, in question uh, as historical anomalies, if you will, and 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 that, and that thereby they are also rendered irrelevant for Islamic history, right? So, um, so they are also marginalized in the historiography, uh, is is my point. Yeah, so um, definitely there are high <laughs> political stakes involved here in, 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 these, in these two paradigms. I'm hearing you say two things, and please correct me if I'm wrong. On the one hand, people try to claim Alevism under other identities like Turkish nationalism. But on the other hand, it's a, it's a move of just trying to marginalize and, and um, make it sort of less relevant that these kind of um, dissentient religious communities, which is actually the next question I will ask you about, um, uh, like their relevance in the historiography or in the history of um, the Middle East. Right. Uh, so basically, good Turks but bad Muslims. So they they, they play a key role in the constructed nationalist narrative of the early 20th century. They are the carriers of some uncontaminated uh, core Turkish culture, right? It's almost like they sacrifice their religion for the preservation of their ethnic identities. You know, uh, you know this whole idea that Alevis are the true Turks and, and, and they remain loyal to their pre-Islamic religions and cultures even after they converted nominally to Islam. So from the perspective of their religious beliefs and ideals, ideas, they are really not a group to be taken seriously because it's all about, you know, it's just a contamination, a decadent form of Islam, right? But they definitely are uh, um, important for the construction of a Turkish nationalist narrative that sort of uh, establishes a direct line between Central Asia and, and, and the Turks of Central Asia and Anatolia and the Turks of Turkey. And of course, here, I, what I have in mind is, is mostly, you know, like that whole historiography that starts with Köprülü, right? Sure. Yes, the Köprülü yeah. paradigm and um, yeah. sort of telling of, I guess, Turkish history sometime in the 1930s and 40s as it's being constructed. Right. So then, I mean, something I, I pinned in your previous response and, and while reading your book is your objection to the use of the term syncretism and your mm -hmm. preference for the term uh, dissentient religious mm -hmm. communities. 
Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the tensions surrounding the notion of syncretism and why you prefer to sort of call Alevis a dissentient religious community? Right. So, you know, the, the, the two uh, approaches or, or, or paradigms in the historiography, uh, in the, the existing historiography uh, through which Kizilbashism has been viewed conventionally, uh, they, they are united in relegating this tradition, the, the Kizilbash Alevi tradition, to the world of a timeless syncretism and allow for little of the generalization necessary for a positive line of historical inquiry. So basically, you know, the Kizilbash Alevis end up with, with you know, like as, as one of those people with no history, right? Um, so... It's in that sense that I have problems with syncretism. But let me be clear here. Um, you know, what I'm disputing is not uh, the existence of syncretic processes in the making of Kizilbashism or in other religious or cultural traditions for that matter. Because, uh, you know, historians know that this is how, uh, this is how his history operates, Right. Uh, uh, religious and cultural traditions, they built on each other. They mix and match. So syncretism, syncretic processes are part and are an integral part of history for all groups. Um, what I find problematic is uh, the ahistorical application of this concept of religious syncretism and its use as a taxo taxonomical tool to differentiate between, you know, hybrid and supposedly pure traditions. Um, you know that and for a long time, you know, and, and still true today, you know, a lot of people would treat syncretism as the defining characteristic of Kuzilbashism or Alevism, even though all religions have composite origins. So that is what I find uh, uh, problematic. Um, and then once you identify a tradition as syncretistic, then you can start dissecting it into uh, its uh, smaller parts and to trace them back to some imagined pure ethnic or religious generative source. Uh, but then what, what ends up happening in, in, in all these studies is that we really get very little idea about the whole, about the greater whole and uh, how it was maintained uh, over the centuries, what it meant to its adherents, so on and so forth. So, um, so then what I'm saying is that uh, when used ahistorically and as a taxonomical tool to differentiate between uh, pure and decadent counterpart, pure traditions and and their de uh, decadent counterparts, uh, supposedly, uh, the concept of syncretism uh, first of all loses much of its analytical and explanatory power, um, but also uh, turns into an othering term that serves to validate the hegemony of the. Um, self-acclaimed custodians of uh, normativity. Um, in, in, in other words, uh, it's not a, a, an analytical concern 
uh, that is at stake here. There, there are issues of power involved in singling out certain religious traditions as syncretistic, when in reality, uh, all religions, uh, as I said before, have composite historical origins. So I, I try, I try to use a more neutral term, dissentient. Um, so. I mean, one can think of probably better terms, but that was that was sort of the motivation behind behind that behind using that that term in in place of syncretism. Yeah, it seems to me that dissentient is a word that can uh, that can sort of counteract the flattening of Alevi history that is done by the sort of taxonomic employment of the term um, of the term syncretism, as you were just describing. And so and, and, and I think this is something that you do so well in your book, which is giving a sort of social history of Alevism. Right. This is this is not about sort of like giving a description of who the Alevis are, even though this is how we started our conversation. Uh, your book is really about telling the history of the, um, the sort of rise and transformation of Alevism. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Anatolia, the home of Alevism in the 15th and 16th centuries, as well as sort of Ottoman rule during this time and how Kazilbashism arises out of this context because I think this is exactly where like the term dissentient to me makes a lot of sense uh, in, in reference to um, Alevi history and, and describing Alevi communities. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I'm glad to hear that because I, I um, never felt fully comfortable about that term, but I just couldn't come up with anything better. So uh, it, it, it's great if it makes um, sense uh, to the readers. But yeah, so for for the um, you know where uh, the the, the um where it all started, right? So um, I, I clearly trace it back to the Kizilbash movement of the late of the second half of the 15th and early 16th centuries. Um, but what I, what I try to do in my book is, is, is to reconceptualize the Kizilbash milieu or the Kizilbash movement um, as, a, as a coalition of separate but interconnected Sufi and Dervish groups and, and, and related Said families. Um, these these Sufi and Dervish groups, uh, they did share certain things in common in terms of their modes of piety, such as, um, I don't know, like a pronounced uh, esoteric and, and alid orientation and also um, uh, a tacit rejection um, of the strictly textual authority of legalist Islam and and you know the, the this emphasis on charisma as a source of authority, so on and so forth. But but in the end, these were groups uh, with their own autonomous spheres of influence, right? And then they would come together and form a coalition under the leadership of the Safavid uh, family. Um, now, the way I envision the Kizilbash milieu uh, stands in contrast to the conventional image of the, of the Kizilbash movement um, as, an, as an amorphous collection of tribes, basically, and, and more specifically, semi-Islamized Turkmen tribes. 
So I'm, I'm basically challenging that conventional image and, you know, reconceptualizing uh, the, the Kizilbash milieu. Now, where did these groups come from is, of course, uh, the, the, an important question here. These Sufi and Dervish groups. Um, these were clearly extensions or offshoots of migrant Sufis and Dervishes who hailed from more established centers of Islam in the East and settled in the frontier region of Anatolia, starting from the early 1200s onwards. Um, it's well known from uh, studies, uh, like, for, for example, by, you know, uh, Jamal Kafadar's book, um, um, you know, we know very well uh, that the religious and sociocultural landscape of Anatolia during the four centuries between the initial arrival of the Seljuks and the entrenchment of Ottoman rule, circa 1500, was extraordinarily complex and fluid. Um, Islam specifically was represented by groups of not only diverse ethnic and social backgrounds, but also uh, with various religious orientations and temperaments. Um, ranging from madrasa-centered Sunni juridical Islam to normative tariqa Sufism and antinomian dervish piety with, with Shi'i and Alid tinges. And of course, you know, the, they, these groups then would commingle and cross-pollinate with an equally heterogeneous, indigenous Christian population, right? Um, but, but of these diverse groups, uh, I think the Sufis and, and the Dervishes played a particularly important role in, in many in many different ways. Um, they were, to, to begin with, they were the most effective proselytizers. They, uh, as such, served as the driving force of Islamization and even Turkification, because we also sort of know that they, they contributed uh, significantly to the development of a literary culture in Western Turkish, right? Um, and in the political arena, too, um, they, they were important players, uh, bestowing religious legitimacy on the frontier warriors, the local dynasties, you know, these Turco-Muslim principalities that... Um, covered the entire uh, map, political map of uh, the region following the waning of Pan uh, Mongol political control. And the Ottomans were definitely uh, one of those uh, local dynasties on the receiving end of this, of this support, right? And, and they competed for the support of these uh, dervish groups and Sufi groups and, and, and they patronize them uh, in turn. And, you know, like the famous story of Sheikh Edebali, you know, and his famous uh, dream that is one of the founding myths of the Ottomans. But then over time, again, it's pretty well known that um, with the Ottoman state's gradual transformation from a frontier principality into a centralist autocracy, these more radical, non-conformist dervish groups, such as the Abdals of Rum, I mean, the Abdals of Rum, I think, are really key here. 
Um, so, so these groups who were partners in the early Ottoman enterprise, if you will, they would be marginalized both politically and religiously. Um, relations between these uh, dervish groups and Sufi, Sufi groups in the, in the House of Osman actually uh, was already severely fractured by the reign of Mehmed II, but they would take a turn for the worse in the wake of the Safavids' ascent to power in, in neighboring uh, Persia. The latter, uh, of course, functioned as a vortex pulling in these groups who were alienated from the burgeoning imperial order. So, like, of everything that I have said here, really my, perhaps my original contribution I guess I can say is is um, is what I say about uh, the pre-Safavid uh, pre-Safavid uh, proto-Kizilbash milieu. I guess so. What what I try to show is that the Kizilbash milieu was not an entirely Safavid creation, but had an autonomous and prior existence grounded in a cluster of separate but interconnected Sufi and Dervish groups and, 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 and related Said families. But, you know, they would come together, uh, form a coalition under the leadership of uh, the Safavid Dudman, right, the Safavid household. And, and, and of course, the Safavid leadership was crucial uh, in bringing these groups together, but also in the longer term, in the crystallization and consolidation of a Kizilbash identity, an overarching Kizilbash identity. Yeah. Thank you for this uh, for this response, which contextualizes for our listeners really well how um, sort of like Anatolia in this period became a place that was conducive to the um, rise of a movement like. Kizilbashism and Alevism. And something that I wanted to ask you in as a follow-up to this question has to do with the rivalry between the Ottomans and the Safavids. So now we know that sort of the Alevism is not, a, 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 we cannot say that like it's directly linked to the Safavid movement, but at the same time, there is a sort of like um, milieu, right, in which um, in which there's an intense rivalry between the Ottoman Empire of Selim I and uh, uh, the Safavid Empire of Shah Ismail. And in this milieu, we see a lot of, uh, I think, I mean, your work shows that we see a lot of activity um, in terms of the social organization of the Alevis. So I just, I wanted to ask you if, if you would clarify a little bit about how, um, yeah, about how the movement is responding to the kinds of uh, imperial formations that are taking place in uh, around them and centralizing rule around them. Right. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, this the 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 growing tensions between the Ottoman household and these. Uh, sort of radical uh, dervish groups and, and, and other Sufi movements, it had 
uh, it was directly related to growing centralization and, and growing uh, orthodoxization of the Ottoman state. Um, so that that is uh, clearly true. Of course, you know, there is a broader context to it. So we have the the, the Mongol period, right? And, uh, and 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 uh, and in addition to that, the frontier uh, character of, of Asia Minor. And also, uh, as we um, as Ahmed Kara Mustafa has really nicely demonstrated, this is a time period uh, for um, like the Sufi uh, within Sufi history. It's a period of uh, what Ahmed Kara Mustafa calls, Second renunciatory movements, like the, the, these these dervish movements, they sort of are revived. These very radical antinomian dervish movements, and the Abdals of Rum were uh, really a, a part of that as well. But then, what will happen is um, with the um, uh, with the coming of the conventional age. I guess, uh, you know, the growing imperial rivalries and, you know, the, the, this whole idea of the end of times and, and, and a world empire emerging and so on and so forth. So what happens is we see the emergence of these highly centralizing imperial structures and they try to um, homogenize, define a particular orthodoxy and then homogenize their subject populations along the lines of that uh, one sort of uh, rigidly defined orthodoxy. So a lot of these groups will not find the kind of room that they had in this earlier periods to, to, to exist and, and to flourish. So there are all these sort of broader uh, uh, developments that we need to take into account uh, in terms of like the Ottoman Safavid conflict, um, yeah, I mean, uh, so, so the Safavids emerge at a time when all these ideas are floating in the air that, you know, uh, the, this is the end of times and there will be one single world empire. And the, the Safavids come into the scene with a very powerful um uh, claim to legitimacy, both religiously and charismatically, and of course, uh, for the Ottomans, this is this is very threatening. Um, you know, as as Cornell Fletcher uh, puts very nicely, we tend to take the Ottomans for granted, and we tend to. Uh, take it for granted that their legitimacy was uncontested from the very beginning. But that is obviously not true because the Ottomans actually had ideologically and religiously really weak claims to legitimacy. They were not descendants of Genghis, right? That would sort of give them uh, a, a legitimacy from a Turco-Mongol from the perspective of Turco-Mongol traditions, they did not have any religious legitimacy. They were not Sayyids or, you know, uh, they were just some um, Ghazis, right? But then, you know, when the Safavids come to the scene, you know, they, they, they were Sayyids, at least they were believed to be Sayyids, and they headed one of the most uh, 
popular Sufi orders, right, during the Mongol period. So uh, definitely the Ottomans felt the threat of that. And and then all these uh, groups, Sufi and Dervish groups, they uh, saw the Safavids as an alternative to the Ottomans, obviously. And... and, um, but but there's one important thing here, uh, and th- th- an important nuance that I want to emphasize here, from the perspective of the um, sort of Alevi Ojak system, uh, I should say, the Safavids are technically just another charismatic family line, uh, another Sayyid family. So the, the leadership of the Safavids within this Kızılbaş milieu is like, um, uh, it, um, you know, like um, number one among equals kind of a thing, right? So because all these uh, Sufi dervish groups and Sayyid families, they had their own sort of... Uh, charismas and 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 they they also believe that they were either sayyids or came from shahili families so the kızılbaş the safavid control over this uh kızılbaş milieu was in no way absolute and 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 non-negotiated uh because that that there is also that whole misconception that somehow you know the kızılbaş uh, believed that Shah Ismail was God or the Safavids were God. You know, they're attributed this sort of very uh, crude and naive understanding of messi- messianism, even though our sources does not confirm it. It was it was much more fluid than that. It was and even the Safavid leadership was um, kind of uh, open to negotiation. I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but... I- <laughs> no, I, I, I think you definitely are because... I mean, you brought the whole thing together with the Ojak system, which I think, it, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me that Safavids, from the perspective of the Kazilbash, represent not the sort of like great messianic um, appearance, but but rather, um, but as a rather like one of uh, one of the sort of nodes of the much larger Ojak system, albeit being a very strong one, right? Um, right, right. Or, or maybe forerunners. I, I mean, messianism is not entirely absent, but, you know, uh, to the extent we can see in the existing uh, sources, uh, the Safavids, if anything, were seen as forerunners of uh, the Messiah or, you know. So there's still that, that, that whole uh, broader context of the conventional age. But it's 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 actually I, I think the Safavids in many ways is 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 quite similar to the Ottomans um, and and their state building process and their ideologies. And I try to explain that in my book what I mean with that. There are of course differences too. But yeah. Uh, then I guess I have like two interconnected questions. One is about your exploration and sort of explanation of the Ojak system where you, I think, do a lot of um, work in putting together uh, networks whose sources are at the same time, like, incredibly decentralized. So I guess, like, I'm both asking about the Ojak networks and how uh, they function in the social history of Alevism, but also about your research. How did you come to sort of 
find the sources that allow you to uh, comment on the ways in which like Alevis were networked in the 16th century Ottoman context when uh, you know this this kind of research had not been done before right okay so I I see two questions here right yes. <laughs> one is on the Ojak systems and, and the yes. other uh, uh, the uh, the sources I guess so, so so in terms of the Ojak system, you know, for a long time, the Kızılbaş communities were imagined to be this a nebulous collection of tribes devoid of any identify, uh, identifiable religious structures. But then uh, there, was a, there was an Alevi cultural revival around the ter- turn of the 1990s. And since then, this myth has been dispelled, basically. And now we know uh, that uh, we know a lot about the traditional community organization of the Kızılbaş Alevis. Uh, this was clearly a, a genealogically based socio-religious organization centered on a group of charismatic family lines known as Ojaks. Um, so basically what I what I tried to do was okay here we have a system a, a, a model for some social religious organization where did this come from right you know how was it formed and and you know what are what are the sort of its its genealogies uh, if you will but just, just for those of uh, for, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Ojak system just very briefly uh, each Alevi community, uh, whether defined on the basis of a vill- village or a tribe or a subsection of either of the two, is attached to a particular ojak, uh, a saintly lineage, if you will. And members of these ojaks are believed to be uh, of Sayyid ancestry through the progeny of Ali and, 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 and Fatima. And members of these ojaks are called dedes or peers, and they fulfill liturgical, judicial, and educational functions. So, so this, this um, like you said, highly decentralized and flexible configuration of authority, uh, binding together saintly families and convents, Sufi convents, in a loose hierarchy, seems to have generated and successfully sustained a distinct Kızılbaş Alevi collectivity over the centuries. Actually, even today, uh, the internal definition of the community's external boundaries still rests on the memory of this uh, uh, Alevi Ojak network uh, because, um, you know, and their affiliates, their, their descendants qualify as members of the in group. Uh, simply by virtue of being born into an Alevi family, even though a majority of Alevis live secular lives today and they don't necessarily practice um, any of the rituals, right? Um, so, so, so the Ojaks, it appeared to me, I, I, I really did not want to work with uh, the, the, the elusive and historically hard to document religious ideas and ritual practices because you can... It's a very slippery slope, right? Um, so I wanted something more c- concrete. And I thought that uh, uh, the Ojaks would be a good lens uh, through which to investigate to investigate um, the historical origins of this milieu. 
Um, so, so what I tried to do was I, I, I actually studied uh, individual OJAC families uh, based on their own family documents. And in, in almost, in virtually all cases, um, I was able to trace their family histories back to the, um, uh, to the, to the Sufi milieu, to the multi-ethnic Sufi milieu of late medieval and early modern periods. Um, and, and, you know, in Anatolia and of course, neighboring regions like Iraq, for instance, uh, emerged as an important um, area uh, for this. But there's one thing that needs to be explained, of course, here. You know, we, we, we can't assume that, you know, the Ojak system emerged full-fledged uh, as soon as, you know, <laughs> the Kizilbash movement formed, right? So that is uh, one of the interesting processes that we can actually follow uh, with these uh, uh, Alevi sources, and I'll say more about them. The, the, the sources found in the family archives of Dada families. Um, so, so basically, just to summarize, this is what I've found. Um, as a result of what I call in my book a process of Sayyidization, uh, it seems that the prior Sufi affiliations of these families receded into the background eventually fading away completely in favor of an exclusive emphasis on their uh, Sayyid descent, real or imagined Sayyid descent. And I identified two major factors that fueled the Sayyidization process. One factor was, of course, the coming together of these uh, families, groups, um, dervish groups, whatever, under the leadership of the Safavi family, and uh, the, the, either the gradual decline in value or more likely a deliberate repression of their prior Sufi affiliations because the Safavids did not really, as we know very well, even though the Safavids themselves came from a Sufi background, they did not tolerate Sufi groups in Safavi territory. So these groups, they had to repress, <laughs> I guess, their prior Sufi affiliation. So that's one factor, the, the, the Safavids and their leadership. But the other equally important factor, I think, was the Ottoman state's persecutor policies targeting the very Sufi infrastructure of the Kızılbaş milieu. Um, usually when we think about Kızılbaş perse persecutions, we think about, uh, you know, the physical sort of um, executions and so on and so forth. But really, uh, uh, Kuzilbash uh, persecutions should be thought in a, in a, in a much sort of uh, wider framework. And the, the virtual elimination of the infrastructure of, of these Ojak families, of what would eventually become Ojak families, was definitely part of that process. So these two factors then together seem to have uh, uh, facilitated the emergence of a more homogeneous and egalitarian syst OJAC system as we know it today um, and, and the eclipse of the more heterogeneous origins, Sufi origins um, of these families. Yeah. 
I, I hope this makes sense, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, um, I guess to, to treat it in tandem with the OJAC system, but also like, you, you know, the way that you went about your research is so extraordinary for, um, for Ottoman studies, because we normally, you know, go to state archives and, 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 uh, sort of like drudge through the countless numbers of documents that are found, say, in the Istanbul archives um, or various other sort of centralized places. But um, reading your book, it, it was clear that like you actually did a lot of, I, I mean, what I would call ethnographic work. I don't know if you would call it that in order to reach the sort of Dede family, you know, like these Dede families and, and to um, ask for their documents and and then these were making up the majority of the sources that you consulted to sort of, I don't know if it's majority to be honest but like they really make up the I think bulwark of your arguments so I wanted to ask you about your research process and sort of yeah how how did it go how did you do it <laughs> yeah 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 uh, yeah definitely well th again thank you for this question uh yes in fact uh I personally did not expect that I would uh, use so many of these private archives. To be honest with you, I just wanted to spice up my source base a little bit. My original expectation was that I would, you know, for the most part, rely on Ottoman archival sources. But then, um, so when this uh, Alivi cultural revival took place in the early 1990s, uh, you know, People started publishing a lot of books for the for the popular audience, and um, and it was in those publications that I first encountered um, uh, th that I first became aware of the existence of such documents. And uh, yeah, I was intrigued, and I I uh, so so through initially through some family connections, but then eventually you know just going and visiting villages. Uh, I sort of, you know, established personal relationships with these families. It took me a while to gain their confidence. Um, even though, you know, I come from an Alevi background myself, that in and of itself is not sufficient, obviously, uh, for these families to share with you their, their private archives. Because, you know, these are sources that have been preserved in these family archives for generations and uh, and protected from the gaze of outsiders um, for for a long time for fear that something would happen to them they would get confiscated by the state so on and so forth so um, yeah so I started uh, going to villages. Uh, I started spending pretty much all my summers, um, like starting in 1995, even just visiting Alivi villages, and and because I was learning Ottoman, Turkish, and Arabic, you know, uh, I was kind of, um, you know, sometimes just helping them figure out what was in their documents, family documents. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, it was a long process, but and and and, and I I agree with you that uh, it's a completely different experience because you are not working simply with some written document, but you actually have real people, you know, who value those documents, who have stories to tell, you know, about 
those documents and what they mean to them. And, you know, so that's how my project kind of formed almost uh, organically. You know, I realized, you know, I have to study these documents along with the oral histories, oral traditions of the families in question. Um, yeah, just just to give a general idea, you know, what, what, what kind of documents uh, we have in these private archives. Well, and, and I collectively call them Alevi sources. And uh, these are basically documents and manuscripts in Turkish, Arabic, and occasionally Persian spanning from the uh, 15th to mid-20th century, with the exception of one document from the late 14th century. It's mostly 15th, 16th century and onwards. And they compromise such genres as uh, Sufi and Ahi, Ijazas, diplomas, genealogies of sayedhood, um, uh, ziyaret names, confirming that their holders paid visits to the Shi'i Ali pilgrimage sites in Iraq, Hilafet Names granted by the Safavids, Berats, Fermans, Hujets issued by the Ottoman authorities, confirming their holder status as Sayyids and as dervishes, in addition to uh, documents dealing with more mundane issues. And there are also, of course, manuscripts, uh, collections of religious treatises and, and poetry and so on and so forth. Yeah, so uh, these documents, I, I think, uh, just just to wrap up my answer, uh, you know, I, I was truly surprised to find this, you know, amazing new body of written material, uh, and we still don't have a picture of the full extent of, of, of these sources. And um, I think they are not only valuable for shedding light on some fundamental aspects of Kızılbaş history that have long remained uh, unknown in, 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 in the dark, but they also force us to revise a number of well-established assumptions concerning the wider uh, religio-political environment of pre-Ottoman Anatolia and in the early years of the Ottoman Empire, uh, not to mention, of course, this Ottoman-Safavid conflict. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think also you are opening the path for future researchers to explore archives that are outside of um, the sort of centralized state archives, which we normally make use of. So in that sense, I, I, I mean, I find this sort of ethnographic gesture, let's say, of your research to be quite inspiring and also seeing how effective it is in undermining our assumptions. Uh, it, it, it adds to the whole, um, like uh, to the whole value, I think, of this, of this book for people who are interested in learning more about the methods of historical analysis, even when we are looking at um, the late medieval, early sort of modern Ottoman period. So yeah, that's that's really something I appreciated about about reading um, the Kızılbaş Alevis in Ottoman Anatolia. Well, and, and Deren, uh, let me just add here that in the part of the world where we are from, uh, there are so many uh, such private archives, family archives that have not being used at all, that we don't even know about. I was surprised to find that out, even in our 
apartment building in Istanbul, you know, uh, just totally unsuspected neighbors. Uh, there were like a few cases like that. They would bring to me, you know, uh, family documents in Ottoman and, and ask me to read. So there was really a great potential, uh, especially in Ottoman, Turkish studies, Anatolian, whatever, to do that kind of, um, you know, using uh, family archives and doing ethnographic work. Yeah. So I want to shift gears very um, a, a little bit to one of the major findings of your work. I mean, we've talked about so many uh, of the um, challenges to accepted paradigms that you've posed, but one of the sort of major findings of your book is the historical affinity between Alevi saintly lineages with the Wafai Sufi tradition. So can you tell us a little bit about the Wafaiya and their relationship to the Kuzilbash Alevis and how your finding modifies our understanding of the Kuzilbash Alevi history? Right. So, yes, definitely, you know, that was the, the one of the most uh, or, or perhaps the most the most surprising discoveries that came out of my research into uh, Alevi sources. That is the... Um, a previously little recognized widespread presence in late medieval Anatolia of the Iraqi-born Wafai or Wafai Sufi order, cutting across social, ethnic, and even sectarian divisions, and for the purposes of Alevi history, the historical affinity between this Sufi tradition and several prominent Kızılbaş Alevi Ojaks. Um, well, not all uh, Alevi Ojaks uh, are uh, Wafai affiliated, but definitely a significant group centered in Eastern and Central Anatolia are, according to their own um, family documents. So what does that mean uh, for future research or for our understanding of Alevi history? Well, first of all, um, it highlights, I think, uh, the multi-ethnic Sufi milieu of the Middle East, or Anatolia and the neighboring regions, if you will, as the most appropriate context within which to explore genealogy, genealogies of Kuzilbash Alevism. And as such, it clearly contests the long-standing Kerpula paradigm in the field, which uh, traces the origins of um, the Alevi or and Bektashi tradition to the pre-Islamic Turkish culture uh, in Central Asia. So that is really the, the, the sort of the broad takeaway here. That doesn't mean that, you know, again, um, uh, that doesn't mean that there weren't anybody coming from like any Sufi groups uh, coming from, from Central Asia or from Khorasan. You know, we can see that that was also uh, uh, part of the story, but certainly there was this... Uh, uh, very important uh, strain of Sufi and Dervish groups coming from Iraq, especially directly to Anatolia. Uh, and the Wafaiya specifically emerges as, uh, as, as an important component here. Um, the Wafai Sufi tradition originated uh, in 11th century Iraq. Uh, its uh, founder um, or you know, the namesake, uh, uh, Abul Wefa or Abul Wefa was a Sayyid, uh, according to its history, uh, hagiography, 
and he spent most of his life among tribal Kurds in central Iraq, where he commanded an ethnically and socially diverse following. But what is, uh, aside from this, uh, you know, this sort of, you know, that, that we need to somehow shift our focus uh, from Central Asia to Iraq, maybe the, the cradle of Sufism, right? I, I think what really fascinated me and excited me was um, what I discovered about the Wafai tradition itself, because um, like as a Sufi tradition. Now, Epirwefa, according to the Silsila, um, given in the in the Wafai uh, diplomas, uh, what is directly connected to one of the earliest Sufi circles in Basra in southern Iraq. Uh, the, the, and, and, and what's special about this, um, the, the, the uh, Basran Sufis, is that they represented an alternative, uh, an antinomian strain within Sufism that was distinct from that of the nor- normative Baghdadi tradition associated with the famous Junaid al-Baghdadi. And, and, and the Wafai tradition, um, it, you know, of course, over time, as this normative Sufism came to be defined, a lot of these alternative strains within, within Sufism came to be marginalized and, and pushed beyond the pale, right? Um, and by people like, you know, like Imam Ghazali, for instance. Um, now, the interesting thing uh, um, about the Wafai Silsila is that um, it reaches to uh, one of the seminal Sufi figures, Sahlal uh, Tusteri. Uh, so Sahlal Tusteri was one of the two giants of early Sufism, the other one being Junaid al-Baghdadi. But interestingly enough, uh, Sahlal Tusteri's na- name is not typically encountered in, in, in Sufi silsilas. So the Wafai silsila uh, is possibly the one and only Sufi line claiming an explicit and direct connection to Sahlal Tusteri and to his Sufi circle in Basra. Uh, so that is what I really find exciting about, about the Wafai tradition. And, and, and hence the, the importance of the Wafaiya, uh, not just for Alivi Bektashi history, but for the history of Sufism in general. My sort of final substantive question has to do with this, uh, the, the question of the persecutions of Alevis um, and uh, which were sort of, we kind of touched on this. You were saying that they were not only being persecuted, of course, under the Ottomans, but also under the Safavids. But I want to ask more specifically about the uh, Ottoman case because of the sort of, you know, the history of um, Sultan Selim I and uh, and and the massacres of uh, Alevis that were taking place during this time, um, you suggest that Alevi, like we ought not to perceive this history through the binaries of tolerance versus intolerance or politics versus religion. How should we then understand Alevi persecutions in the Ottoman Empire and the sort and the long-lasting legacy of these persecutions in the formation of contemporary Alevi identity? Right. So uh, 
Yeah, my, my answers end up being really long because your questions are really uh, uh, very profound questions. So in each case, I pretty much sort of uh, <laughs> end up uh, summarizing, right, uh, one entire chapter. Um, but yeah, so um, again, thank you for this great question because um, there is this, this very common assumption about some inherent uh, Ottoman administrative pragmatism and religious tolerance, and, and this assumption also shapes the conventional thinking about uh, Kizilbash persecutions, that, you know, they were simply localized and historically particular exceptions to this norm of Ottoman tolerance propelled essentially by security concerns and, and by political motivations and not religious motivations. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of problems with this line of thinking, uh, you know, First of all, you know, a de facto pluralism and tolerance should not be confused with a principled commitment to the toleration of religious difference, right? Uh, because we know that, like other persecuting states, the Ottomans were ready and capable of um, capable to employ coercive power whenever they felt necessary to secure external religious conformity. Um, also, you know, uh, persecution does not need to be universal uh, or end in extermination to be effective. You know, uh, so long as uh, the threat or fear of persecution is periodically validated and reinforced, then, you know, you can control people's behaviors. So tolerance and intolerance are not mutually exclusive categories. They often coexist, right? And even require each other to be meaningful. The same false binaries established between religious and political motivation, as if one precludes the other, uh, uh, even though, like, uh, in the, in, especially in the context of the 16th century, you know, separating the political from the religious. I mean, is that is that even possible? You know, would be my question. Um, but that's sort of the, the my broader comments, right? Uh, more specifically, uh, what I critique in my book is um, to treat Kizilbash persecutions uh, as an inevitable and unmediated and self-explanatory outcome of the Ottoman Safavid rivalry. Um, you know, this whole story about uh, how the Safavids posed an existentialist challenge to the Ottomans and acted on the basis of some grand strategy to expand into Anatolia, even though evidence in that regard is actually pretty weak. Um, but this, this, this logic of inevitability obscures many things um, that, that, first of all, that... Um, it was a policy choice on the part of Selim, Selim uh, to replace his father's more moderate sort of carrot stick policy with active persecution. That, that was a policy choice, right? And, and this policy choice was closely related to the intra-dynastic rivalry and, and civil war in the years leading up to Selim's ascent to power in 1512. Right, so we need to remember that. Uh, so it was not inevitable; it was a choice. Um, but I also argue that um, the continuing relevance of confessional politics that was inaugurated with, with you know, with Selim's ascent to power, uh, 
its its continuing relevance uh, also need to be explained. And and I think this um, can can or should be explained within the context of um, a fundamental ideological and structural shift in the Ottoman Empire during this period, which I, along with some other historians, call Sunni confessionalization, um, which brought about a major reconfiguration of Ottoman dynastic self-identification and, and imperial politics. And so, so the othering of the Kazilbaj and their exclusion from the Ottoman policy then um, was key to the consolidation and perpetuation of the empire's um, Sharia-centered Sunni identity upon which the dynasty came to recast uh, its legitimacy, leg- legitimizing ideology. So, so to put it differently, then um, the repressive measures against the Kuzilbaj emerged not um, as simple security measures, but rather as a factor in Sunni confessionalization and as a performance of Sunni hegemony. Um, Now, um, another point that I emphasize in this context is the long-term consequences of this confessional turn in Ottoman politics. Um, What I try to show is how these uh, persecutory measures against the Kuzilbaj worked together with the Ottoman state's Sunnitization policies to create greater confessional uniformity and conformity in the empire, right? Uh, so, so, you know, like the, it wasn't only the Kuzilbaj who were impacted by the persecutors, uh, by these policies. It was the, the larger uh, Muslim uh, polity, right? Um, and, 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 and this homogenization then resulted in a greater moral integration of Sunni Muslims with the Ottoman states. Um, But then on the flip side, of course, these same policies amplified confessional polarization and and, and animosity, both at the official and popular levels. And as you uh, well know, uh, the effects of of, of, of these are still evident in the Turkish society today, right? You know, the Sunni... Alevi Sunni cleavage being probably the most uh, unsurmountable cleavage still in in the Turkish society today. Um, Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your answer. Well, sorry, can I just add one more thing? Um, So, you know, according to the original confessionalization theory, there is a close relationship between um, confessionalization, religious confessionalization and modern state building processes. You know, this sort of stands in contrast to earlier ideas about the emergence of the modern state, which, you know, people thought went hand in hand with secularization. But, you know, like the um, the confessionalization theory says the opposite, that somehow modern uh, um, national identities and modern states are actually products of these confessionalization processes. And this really fits with the, in the case of uh, the Ottoman Empire and modern Turkey. And we see this in the in this really close entanglement of the Turkish identity with the Sunni identity, 
right? Uh, still, you know, in the Ottoman Empire, after this period, uh, uh, it was this is the Sunni identity. Those were sort of the, uh, um, uh, the the kind of subjects that the Ottoman Empire uh, tried to create and promote. And in modern Turkey, even though the state became technically and formally secular, uh, because of this sort of historical and, and inherent connection between the Turkish identity and and and, and Sunni Islam. Uh, you know, in, in practice, we know that this this formal uh, se- secularism uh, has not really changed uh, a lot, or or not not everything, I guess. And and, and the, the the confessional um, um, boundaries, the the, the cleavage uh, is is still very relevant uh, because of that. Yeah. Before we go out, um, Aifar, I want to ask, what are you working on these days? Oh, well, yeah, I'm working on a lot of different things, uh, as, as, as is typical with academics. Um, well, I'm still receiving new documents. Actually, nowadays, it's so much easier. Everybody knows me now, and people just scan their family documents and email them to me. Uh, currently, I'm working on a family, an Ojak family, whose historical origins seems to lie in the Nurbakhshi Sufi tradition. So that's sort of one thing that I'm working on. Um, another sort of big long-term project that I'm thinking about and planning these days is the creation of a digital Alevi archive that hopefully one day will bring together and make available online for other researchers these family documents and manuscripts. Um, and, and finally, uh, this is actually my second book project. Um, see, uh, since, since graduate school, um, in addition to my work on the Kızılbaş Alevi communities, I also, I've also had an abiding interest in women's history and, and, and gender studies. And so in my next book, um, I would like to uh, venture into areas of research where I can combine my interest in gender studies and non-conformist religious currents in the in the in the Ottoman Empire, and um, to to explore uh, notions of heterodoxy and orthodoxy and their gendered constructions um, using primarily Sufi hagiographies. Um, yeah, I, I even have a provisional title for my book. Uh, yeah. Gender and Heresy, Constructions of Femininity and Masculinity in Late Medieval Sufi Hagiographies. Uh, so yeah, these are all the kind of stuff that I hope I'll be working on. Yeah, that all sounds so exciting, especially, I mean, I really look forward to how you will bring together uh, gender history and gendered analysis um, with the studies of these um, hagiographies. It's been a wonderful pleasure to talk to you about your book, The Kızılbaş Alevis in Ottoman Anatolia, Sufism, Politics and Community. I urge all of you to check out Ifar's book. It is a great read for experts and novices alike. It's out from Edinburgh University Press. Yeah, thank you, Ifar, and uh, goodbye for now. All right. Thank, thank you, Dara. And this was really great. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you.